0: Amen. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, choir. Thank you, orchestra. Well, in just a few short weeks, teams all over the country, high school teams, college teams, are going to be working on the football game again. And what they're going to be doing is working on some basics. Invariably, whenever you hear a coach interview, does he ever come off the field at halftime and they say, coach, coach? What happened in the game? And he says, oh, our uniforms just weren't pretty enough. Our uniforms need to look better. No. Or does he say, well, if the band would just have played another selection, it would have been better. Invariably, any time a coach is interviewed, he says, if we had just blocked and tackled better. We just need to block and tackle better. We just need to play our assignments. That's what we need to do. Now, the same is true in the Christian life. We just need to play our assignments. Today I want us to look at seven fundamentals that will make a difference in your life. Fundamental number one, be a Christian. Now folks, today when I say be a Christian, I'm not talking about be a Baptist. I'm not talking about be a member of the church. I'm not talking about be a good person. I mean have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ where you have repented of your sins, where you have acknowledged His Lordship and asked Him to come in and save you. I can't tell you how many times through the years I'll hear someone give a testimony. And that testimony will be, well, I grew up in the church. I've always been to church. I've been a Baptist since I was little. Folks, that is not a testimony about knowing Christ. The only testimony about knowing Christ is that I trusted Christ is my Lord and Savior. So the very first fundamental that we have to have is be a Christian. The second fundamental, live a life of praise and gratitude. Now this is just not a cute little word that we picked out today, but this should be the cry of your heart as you worship and praise the Lord. Psalm 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Psalm 34.3 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 33 says, "Sing Sing for joy to the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Psalm 95 says, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. And then Psalm 100 says, Enter His gates with thanksgiving, and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and bless His name. So why do we praise Him? First of all, we praise Him because of who He is. Dr. S.M. Lockridge gave that great message where he describes Jesus. I'm going to give you just a few excerpts from that. But I heard him preach that message in Dallas back in the late 70s at the School of the Prophets in First Baptist Dallas. And what a meaningful message it was. Dr. Lockridge said this, David said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's God's son. He's a center savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's august. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He says, well, my king is the king. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring to wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Where you can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hand. You can't outlive him. And you can't live without Him. The Pharisees couldn't stand Him, but they found out they couldn't stop Him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in Him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill Him. Death couldn't handle Him. And the grave couldn't hold Him. Yeah, that's my King. That's my King. So this morning, first of all, we praise Him for who He is. But then we praise Him because of what He has done. In Genesis 1.27, it says He has created us. He has created us in the image of God. John 3.16, He has saved us. He came in to save us and to love us and forgive us for our sins. And then Romans 8, He keeps us. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So we praise Him for who He is. We praise Him for what He's done. And then we also praise Him because of what He has promised to do. In Isaiah 41.10, He has promised us strength. In John 14.27, He has promised us Peace. In Psalm 32.8, He has promised us guidance. And in Philippians 4.19, He's promised to meet your needs. And in John 14, 1 through 3 He's promised that He's preparing a place for you. And if He prepares a place, He's going to come again and get you to live in that place forever. So that's why we praise Him. You know what, folks? When we have a life of praise and gratitude, then it brings about the right spirit and the right attitude. Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, the way that reads is, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, how do I have the right spirit or attitude? You cannot praise the Lord and be thankful to Him and have the right attitude and be a grumbly, gripey, negative person. In fact, if you are a grumbly, gripey negative person, I'm not sure that you've ever trusted Christ as your Savior to start off with. The two just do not equal up. You cannot be a grumbly, grippy person. Charles Swindoll said, I believe the single most significant decision I can make on a day-to-day basis is my choice of attitude. It is more important than my past, my education, my bankroll, my successes or failures, fame or pain, what other people think of me or say about me, my circumstances or my position. Attitude keeps me going or cripples my progress. It alone fuels my fire or assaults my hope. When my attitudes are right, there is no barrier too high, no valley too deep, no dream too extreme, no challenge too great for me. Thoughts are the thermostat that regulate what we accomplish in life. And if I feed my mind upon doubt and disbelief and discouragement, that's precisely the kind of day I'm going to have. But if I adjust the thermostat and feed my mind on vision, vitality, and victory, I can count on that kind of day. And you know the what? Norman Vincent Peale and Dale Carnegie, they're not the ones that invented that. Jesus did. In Proverbs 23, 7, he says, For as a man thinks within himself, so he is. And then in 1 Peter 1:13, he says, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Dr. Viktor Frankl was a prisoner, and he said, We who lived in concentration camps, a prisoner of war, said, We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. So today, that fundamental is live a life of praise and gratitude. The next fundamental, make the Word of God your standard. Now, I want us to do something here. No help from any instrument. But when I count to three, I want everybody to sing ah. But I want you to sing it on what you think is A. A above middle C. Okay, there there you go. I'll give you that much help. All right, you ready? All right, one, two, three. Mike, how about hitting an A there for me, please? Now sing that with me, please. Ah. Wow. It's an incredible difference, isn't it? You know why? Because we had a standard to give us the pitch. And that's exactly what we need in our life. We need to have the standard of the Word of God. I love this description. Maybe you've seen this before, but it's a description of the Bible by the Gideons. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good the design, and the glory of God it's in. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Isaiah 48 says, The grass wither, the flower fades, but the word of God shall stand forever. So what do we do about God's word as our standard? First of all, we desire God's Word. In First Peter 2.2 2, it says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk, the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow in respect to salvation. Psalm 119.18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. Psalm 119.97 says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. So we desire God's Word in our heart. Then we are to study God's Word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Psalm 119, 11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. So we desire God's word, we study God's word, but then the hard part is, is we apply God's word. James 1.22 says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, Bible studies are wonderful. And I think we should go to as many Bible studies and study the Bible as much as we can. But folks, it is not right if we study the Bible and don't obey the Bible and appropriate it in our lives. That's what is important, that we have the Word of God as our standard and that we are not only hearers, but we're doers of the Word. So make the Word of God your standard. The next fundamental, be consistent in prayer. Someone has said where there is much prayer, there is much power. Where there is little prayer, there is little power. Where there is no prayer, there is no power. First John 5, 14 and 15 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we will have the request that we have asked of Him. And then Jeremiah 32, 3 says, Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Now, folks, this morning, why is prayer so important? It's important because it develops our relationship with the Lord. Sometimes I'm reminded of the guy that said, Oh, honey, I love you. I would swim the deepest ocean. I would climb the highest mountain. But I can't be with you tomorrow night because the ball game's on. And you know, that's very true with us a lot of times. We'll stand and sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. Jesus is all the world to me. What a friend we have in Jesus. But yet we fail to spend time with Him like we should. Secondly, God commands us to pray. Stuart Briscoe said it would be a good exercise to go to the concordance of your Bible and look up the word pray. Let me give you a few. Matthew 5.44 says, pray for them which persecute you. Matthew 6.6 6 says, pray to the Father which is in secret. Matthew 9.38 says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers. Matthew 26.41 says, watch and pray. Luke 18.1 says, men always ought to pray. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. Very important, very important, prayer. Next, why is prayer important? Because we follow Jesus' example. In Matthew 14.23, it tells us that he went away quietly to pray. And in Luke 6.12, it tells us that he prayed all night long. When Jesus spoke to his disciples, he did not say, if you pray. He said, when you pray. So we follow Jesus' example. And then next, prayer is so important because the Bible is a book of prayer. There are 667 recorded prayers in the Bible. Folks, if there was ever a day that the church and individuals need power from God, it is today. Prayer taps on the reservoir of God's power. We are in a battle. If we came to you today and said there's a lion that's escaped from Riverbank Zoo, Would you go there with a fly swatter? No, absolutely not. And the Bible tells us that Satan is roaming about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. John Piper said, until the Christian life is seen as war, you will not sustain a life of vigilance in prayer, perseverance in prayer, agonizing in prayer, nor will you build a church that prays anything other than some little prayer meeting type, simple little prayer meeting type prayer. Folks, today, it's not now I lay me down to sleep, but it's, oh, God, I am weary. I am beaten. I am worn. I am tempted. I need your strength. I need your power. I need you to fill my life. I need you for every moment of every day. We should be interceding on behalf of our families. We should be interceding on behalf of our nation. We should be interceding on behalf of our state. Be interceding on behalf of our friends. Prayer should be very, very important to us. Be consistent in prayer. Next, fundamental, be a person of great commitment. Commitment means to show loyalty, duty, or pledge to something or someone. Vince Lombardi, the great coach of the Green Bay Packers, said, individual commitment to a group effort. That is what makes a teamwork, a company work, a society work, and a civilization work. Now, Jesus showed us the example of commitment. He showed us great commitment when He went to the cross for us. And you know what's happened to us many times in this day and time? We have traded commitment for comfort. Our motto in this day and time many, is, many times is, well, I'm committed unless something better comes along. True commitment takes sacrifice. True commitment takes loyalty. And our commitment should be to the Lord We should have commitment in marriage, and we should have commitment to one another as Christians and as friends. We've had a good time mentioning our 35th anniversary today, but our marriage has been built upon commitment. You know, they asked Ruth Graham one time if she'd ever considered divorce, and she said no. Murder, yes, but divorce, no. (laughs) So our marriage, our work... Everything must be built upon commitment. And I believe that loyalty is very important with commitment. You see, 35 years ago I made a decision that I was going to be loyal to Pam and committed to her. That decision is not based upon the event of the day or whether my feelings were hurt or whether I got my way. I did the same thing with our pastor when I came here over 24 years ago. I said I'm going to be loyal to him no matter what. And so it's not based on whether you get your way or whether your feelings were hurt. Commitment is based on an overriding decision. Loyalty is based on an overriding decision that I'm going to be loyal and committed to that person. That is a very important fundamental. Be a person of great commitment. Next fundamental, be a faithful witness. We witness because Christ instructed us to. Folks, it is not... Uh, an option. It is a command. Luke nineteen ten says, "For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost." Proverbs eleven thirty says, "The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls." Matthew twenty eight nineteen through twenty says, "Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always." even to the end of the age. Now let's just be honest. And everything I say today, I'm not saying you, I'm saying we. Witnessing's always a challenge to us. We don't witness, I think you boil it down to four things in my mind. I think number one, because we have all the tools, we've got E, E, C, W, T, you name it. But I think number one, we don't witness because sometimes we just really don't care. We just don't care enough to do so. I think, secondly, we really don't believe, and I'm talking about universally, we don't believe that people are lost and dying and going to hell. I think we're afraid of failure. Well, what happens if I tell somebody about Christ and I fail? And I think we worry about what other people think. That's probably our number one that I would say. We worry about what other people think. Al Worthington was a pitcher for the Minnesota Twins. He trusted Christ at a Billy Graham crusade, and he called he had a large family, and he called one of his brothers, and he told his brother that he had trusted Christ as his Savior. His brother said, oh, Al, he said, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for eight years. And Al Worthington told him, said, I don't believe it, because if you had, you would have told me so. Has your heart been broken for your family? For your friends. I'm talking about really broken. To the point of action for the lost. Right now. If someone came rushing in here. Say Herb Howell from my church Came up to me and said. Gave me a message and said. There's a lost child downtown. And in just a few minutes. When the message is over. We're going to ask everyone that will. To form a line. And you're going to join hands. And we're going to march through uh, downtown. We're going to make sure. That we don't miss a square inch. Looking for this child. We would have a lot of volunteers. Everybody would be jumping up. Well, let me tell you something even greater than that. When you leave here today, you're going to encounter people in family, friends, restaurants, work, and other places that are lost and that are dying and that are going to hell. And your word may be the only word that will come to them to help them. Be a faithful witness. Fundamental seven, and this may be one of the most important ones of the day. Make forgiveness a priority. Robert Jefferson is the pastor of First Baptist Church Dallas and a very dear friend of mine for years. And in his book, Clutter-Free Christianity, he says, Most of us have a love-hate relationship with the subject of forgiveness. We desperately want God to forgive us of our sins, and we assume that he's somehow obligated to do so. Similarly, we expect our family and friends to forgive us when we ignore their feelings, lash out in anger, or violate their trust. We, however, find it difficult to extend the same forgiveness to others that we expect from them and from God. One study in the Journal of Adult Development found that 75% of those surveyed believed that God had forgiven them of past mistakes, but only 52% said that they had forgiven other people. C.S. Lewis observed, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have to forgive someone. I want to read a portion of scripture from Matthew chapter 18. I was going to just paraphrase it, but I believe I have time to read it so we can hear the word of God here. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him ten thousand talents. That was a lot of money. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Not much money compared to the other. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And the lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now, I'm not talking about doing something to earn salvation. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus telling us that he has forgiven us, and we need to likewise forgive others. Folks, forgiveness is not a feeling or an emotional response. It is a willful action. Verse 35 sounds, if it is, because he mentions the heart, but in the Jewish worldview, the heart was always the center of the intellect. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Forgiveness is not a suggestion. It is an obligation. Those who have been forgiven must forgive. And it's not a denial of the wrong that has been done. The Bible, doesn't, the Bible says be angry and do not sin. You ever notice that in the Bible? It doesn't say uh, lust and do not sin. It doesn't say lie and do not sin. But it says be angry and do not sin. So sometimes you need to deal with this. But you know what happens to us? We let resentment and bitterness creep in. And this leads to unforgiveness. And it leads to just a terrible situation in our lives. Warren Wearsby said, the world's worst prison is the prison of an unforgiving heart. If we refuse to forgive others, then we are only imprisoning ourselves and causing our own torment. Some of the most miserable people who I have ever met in my ministry have been people who would not forgive others. They lived only to imagine ways to punish these people who had wronged them, but they were really punishing themselves. Folks, we have trouble all over the world today from wars with nations, fights in families, in your own heart and your life, because people will not forgive one another. Let me ask you a question. How about the person who's been treated unfairly at work or at school? Maybe your friend has hurt you. Maybe someone in your family has hurt you. Maybe a spouse has rejected your love. Maybe you have deep resentment to parents. Maybe some of them are already passed away but you have deep resentments to parents or to siblings, what can you do? First of all, we need to humble our heart before God. Then we need to be honest with the Lord. Then we need to extend forgiveness. And then we need to return evil for good. Luke six twenty seven and 28 says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Cory Ten Boom and her family hid Jews from the Nazis in World War II. Eventually, all of her family was captured. After about ten days, her father died. But then Corey and her sister Betsy were sent to the terrible, terrible prison of Ravensbrück. In about seven years' time, they saw thousands upon thousands of people with their lives taken from them being shot, being gassed, horrible ways. She saw her sister Betsy as she was stripped literally naked in front of the guards there. After the war, Corey was speaking in Munich. She had been speaking upon God's forgiveness and what God had done in her life. And she said she saw this man coming up to her and she recognized him. It was one of the guards at the prison. He came up to her and stuck his hand out and said, Thank you for that message on forgiveness. I was a guard at Ravensburg Prison. Well, that let her know that he did not recognize her, even though she recognized him. For he was one of the terrible, cruel ones who had inflicted great pain on her sister Betsy. Corey said, I looked down and had my hand in my pocketbook. She said it was only a few seconds, but it seemed like hours. As I had to make a decision... She said, I knew I had to forgive him. In my heart, I could not do it. But I knew it was a decision of the mind. For forgiveness takes a willful action. She said, oh God, please help me. Spirit of God, please help me to be able to forgive him. He stuck his hand out again. Corey said, I was still struggling. She said, but all of a sudden she was able to take her hand. And she reached her hand up and she placed it in his hand. And she said when she did, there was a rush that came down her arm and her hand and her heart and her life because she knew she had done what God wanted her to. And she said it was one of the greatest spiritual experiences she had ever had when she chose to make the willful decision to forgive him. I'm going to ask us all to bow our heads. Close our eyes, please. How about the fundamentals today, folks? How are you doing with these fundamentals? Are you being committed? Are you in the Word of God? I'm going to ask you to do something today. The only movement I want to be in this sanctuary is to the front. If you need to get up and leave, you wait till this service is over. It's not that much longer. I don't want anybody doing anything to break the Spirit of God and what He needs to do in our heart and life today. You may have joined us by television. And you know that some of these fundamentals you need to work on. You need to forgive someone. I'm going to ask the camera to stay on me, not on anyone in the room. If you know that you need to work on some of these areas in your life today, or you know that you need to forgive someone, God has touched your heart. Would you just raise your hand? Would you just raise your hand? That's hands all over the room. Folks, when we got married 35 years ago, I didn't say, Pam, I love you, but let's just have a little private ceremony because I don't want anybody to know about it. What I said was, I love you, and I want everybody to know. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. Some of you need to come and commit your life to Christ. Some of you need to come to this altar, and you need to make a willful decision today to be forgiven or forgive someone. I'm going to ask you to have the courage to get up out of your seat and come here in a minute and take a public stand for Jesus Christ. Father, this is your time. I pray that you would bless it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, please. As the choir sings and leads us, you come now and make whatever decision you need to make.